Late last year, on December 19th, a Russian draftee named Alexander Shpilivoy uploaded a brief video to social media. He was back home in Voronezh on temporary leave, and he wanted to get something off his chest after watching Vladimir Putin's end-of-the-year press conference, where the president made it clear that he's not about to withdraw his mobilization orders or even introduce troop rotation. Everyone really wants to go home. And as for what people say about how bad Ukrainian soldiers are and how everything is bad in Ukraine, about how they lead their soldiers to slaughter, and how their trenches and their dugouts are infested with mice, they say it like it doesn't happen with us too. Do we want peace or more fighting? Peace, of course. Definitely peace. I think that's what most of the public wants, both the mobilized and the non-mobilized. But the mobilized want it like a hundred times more than ordinary civilians. And our president doesn't want to give it to our mobilized soldiers. It's all very unfair. Military operations need to end. They need to be done. The only ones happy are bureaucrats who plunder our natural resources, because prices on everything are rising like hell. These guys are lining their pockets while the people get poorer. We need justice. Mobilized men, those of you who can, let's use our voices. Maybe after a thousand videos, something will change. The more we're silent, the more they think we like everything and everything is fine. After receiving threats, Spilavoy released a second video soon thereafter where he clarified that he isn't anti-war, anti-Russia, anti-military, or even anti-Putin. I said only that there are problems, he explained. A source who knows Spilavoy told the news outlet iStories that the draftee had grown exhausted with combat since arriving at the front in January 2023, almost a year earlier, and he gradually realized that Moscow has no foreseeable plans to rotate soldiers away from the front lines. Spilavoy returned to the war zone in Ukraine in late December, a few weeks after the videos, at which point his relatives lost contact with him. On January 9th, iStories reported that he was being held in what's known as a punitive pit, literally a big pit in the ground, somewhere in the Lukansk region. The Russian military told his family that everything's fine with Sasha, that he's busy on a combat mission. Spilavoy's story says a lot about the way Russia is fielding its military in its invasion of Ukraine, and about the politics of the so-called partial mobilization that Putin initiated in the fall of 2022. So let's talk about the state of mobilization and military recruitment in Russia after almost two years of war in Ukraine. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and welcome back to another uh, miserable year of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, of the Putin regime, of this podcast. Uh, for any newcomers out there who maybe made it their New Year's resolution to listen to more audio shows about depressing news events, you've come to the right place. This week on our first show of 2024, we're looking at how Russia recruits soldiers to fight in Ukraine through contract incentives and mobilization, and we'll step back and ask what these tactics mean for troop morale, the prospects of the invasion, and Russia's future demographically and otherwise. You'll hear from two experts on this episode, and the first one I'm serving up is Grigory Sverdlin, the founder and director of Project Get Lost, a nonprofit organization that helps Russians evade conscription and mobilization, leave the country, find asylum, find financial aid. I could tell you more about the project, but let's just hear it from Sverdlin himself. Well, we started September 2022, and the idea is to help all of the Russians who do not want to 
be a part of this war, who do not want to become a soldier and uh, kill Ukrainians, to avoid being drafted, being mobilized, or if people are already in the Russian army, we help them to desert and to leave the country, to cross the border legally or even illegally. It's a lot of work. We have more than 150 volunteers now, thanks to all of these people. And uh, we help its psychological consultations, its legal consultations. It's a lot, a lot. And uh, up today, we've helped more than 21,000 people during this one year and a half. And uh, for me and for my colleagues as well, it's partly charity project, but at the same time, it's civil resistance because it's our way to to weaken Russian army and to to make this war over, at least what we can do. And what are the options for for men in Russia who are trying to avoid mobilization? Is it is it simply they have to get out of the country or it, can they get like a medical, you know, exemption or like what are the what are the options available? There are some legal possibilities and medical uh, medical reasons are one of them. Uh, also, educational reasons. Also, it can be so called sociological. I think reason uh, it's translated. So, if you have more than three kids, for example, or you have very old relatives who depends on you. It's possible, it's hard, but it's possible to, to get permission not to go to army, not to be mobilized. But also you can hide, you can first, first rule and first advice which we gave is not to come to army collecting points, even if you receive received conscription note. Just a quick clarification here. Human rights activists in Russia urge people not to report to military recruitment centers, even when they're summoned just to verify their information on file, because there have been cases where men were sent to army collection points directly from recruitment centers, even though this is unlawful. Recruiters have simply stamped men's papers and deployed them immediately, skipping any review of their health or training status. Also, Svedlin is about to mention alternative service in Russia, which is a constitutional right for conscientious objectors, and technically, it allows people who object to the armed services to work instead for the state as street cleaners, waiters, orderlies, postmen, doctors, teachers, and so on. So not to come to the army collecting point is, is the first, the very first advice. A lot of others, everything depends on concrete situation because sometimes it's enough for example, to, to move to other apartment, not to live at the apartment where you are registered. Sometimes it's more complicated. Sometimes you can apply for alternative service. And uh, in Russia, it's really hard to, to get permission to serve on alter alternative service, but at least that will allow you to slow down the mobilization process and further our organization get lost or our colleagues from other organizations will help the person to avoid mobilization, hiding or leaving country. It depends. But the closer the person is to the front lines, so 
definitely it's easier to come to help civilian it's harder to help people in already in army unit and it's extremely hard to help people who are already close to the front lines but still even even from there from time to time we succeed to help people to desert to come to russia from these occupied ukrainian territories and then leave russia or hide in russia because approximately 25 percent so quarter of uh, deserters whom we help they decide not to leave the country even facing criminal charges and being in federal search but people some people have old relatives and uh, they think that they are not able to leave them some people are afraid to cross the border which is reasonable unfortunately some people don't understand how to afford uh, living abroad so yeah be even facing criminal charges as i as i said and uh, up to 15 years in russian prison one quarter of the deserters decide to stay in the country so 15 years is the penalty for leaving the armed services is that the same thing as ignoring a summons or is that different crime no no it's uh, it's not the same the same thing if you ignore a summon it's just administrative case it's not criminal case you can be charged up to 30000 rubles which is approximately 300 dollars but it's anyway it's much better than uh, became russian soldier and kill innocent ukrainians so if you if you never show up to the recruitment board then you can never be charged with desertion because you've never technically been enlisted exactly being being deserted means that you became army soldier but we we've seen and we every day we we are seeing the situation when people on the streets just caught by police or by army soldiers and uh, they forcibly being moved to army collecting point Project Get Lost tracks these raids and counted more than 70 in November alone. The authorities show up where young men hang out at university classrooms, cafeterias, dormitories, subway stations, cafes, bars, nightclubs, even mosques and places that sell Asian food. To give you an idea of just how inventive this stuff gets, there have even been cases where police and military recruiters make targeted visits to potential recruits by posing as buyers of used items listed for sale on online marketplaces. Now, the information available from activists doesn't make it clear how many people have been swept up in these raids or how many have been migrants, but human rights activists say the men are often pressured or tricked into signing contracts to serve in Russia's military after they're rounded up. So it's unfortunately not enough just not to come to army collecting point. It's anyway quite hard and getting harder in Russia, unfortunately, to avoid this mobilization because now... According to new laws, for example, which were signed in April and in August last year by Russian parliament, for example, your organization, place where you work, should give all of the information to a Ministry of Defense about you and about your state of health and so on. Also, if you do not come to army collecting point being summoned, you can be strict to 
leave Russia, you can be not allowed to drive a car, to take a credit in the bank, to sell your property, and so on and so forth. So Ministry of Defense and Russian Parliament, they are doing as much as they can to to scare people, to make this percentage of people who come to army collecting points by themselves as high as possible. Sverdlin is referring to some pretty major reforms enacted recently in Russia. For example, effective this year, the age range for conscription, not to be confused with mobilization, which means combat service, was expanded to men between the ages of 18 and 30, which will raise the number of men in the whole conscription pool to at least 700,000 by next year. The reforms also redefine what it means to receive a military summons. Before, the message had to reach individuals physically by paper, but sending it electronically is now enough, putting men at far greater risk of being held responsible for ignoring the summons. Also, after 20 days of delinquency, men lose the right to drive a car, get a loan, buy or sell property, and so on. It's all meant to add disincentives to staying away from the military recruiters. You talk about the mobilization as an ongoing process. And I know that the executive order that put that into effect is still active. Putin hasn't withdrawn it. But I also see a lot of talk about, oh, well, will there be a second wave, which implies that mobilization has stopped. And, you know, that's, and people call it, or it's officially referred to as a partial mobilization, the idea being that they didn't go all the way. Now, in your view, is mobilization ongoing? Is it, are they still you know, dragging people in against their will into the armed services, or have they paused that? They definitely continue. It's not as active as it was at the end of 2022. But all of the last year, we have seen that mobilization continues. And we think that till president elections in uh, Russia, so-called elections, it's not real elections, but still, which will take place in March this year, Russian authorities do not want to make mobilization as active as it was before. But since March, we think that uh, mobilization, so-called second wave of mobilization, can start any moment. But even now, in fact, it's an ongoing process and authorities continue to force people to sign contracts to become professional soldiers by law, it should, it should be doing just willingly, but a lot of cases when young people or people who just became Russian citizens, they are forced to sign these contracts, otherwise they risk to lose their new passports, and so on and so forth. So authorities are doing everything except active mobilization. They pick up all of the people who come to army collecting points. They force these 18 years young boys to sign contracts. They force migrants to sign contracts and so on and so forth. In September last year, Medusa's newsletter, The Beat, ran a story about a string of police raids over the summer that seemed primarily to target newly naturalized Russian citizens, namely draft-age Central Asian men who had allegedly neglected to complete their military registration. If you'd like to read that report, check the description of this podcast episode for a hyperlink. One of the impressions I get following Russian news and following reactions in the West to Russia's mobilization drive is there's like a mix 
of concern that Russia has like a greater population than Ukraine and can draw on a lot more men if it desires. But at the same time, there are these things that you're describing, the sort of desperation to mobilize men kind of secretly without, and certainly in the context of the of Putin's, you know, re-election campaign, he doesn't want the public to think that they're that they're actually going. They're actually still mobilizing men. In your in your view, is the Russian military? And I, this is maybe, I know that this is you're not you know you're not, you're not a military analyst per se, but like, do you view this as desperation on the part of the Russian authorities, or is it something else? I don't think it's desperation, and I think if it will be necessary, they will start this second wave of mobilization any moment, even before Putin's re-election, because they, I think they own the country and they control, unfortunately, Russian society really good. And uh, we should understand that police, different kind of police forces in Russia, it's approximately two millions and a half. So the army inside of the Russia, police army, is much more than army fighting against Ukraine just now. So it's, uh, it's really hard to fight back being against the war and uh, being in Russia. Now, at the same time, we can see that Russian society is getting more and more tired of this war. And we can see that more and more Russian soldiers want our help, help of my organization, get lost in uh, deserting their army unit. For example, last April, only just 3% of requests to us were about deserting. Please help me to desert. But already in October, it was almost 20%, 18% of people who who requested for our help were from army units and they wanted to desert because they see it as only way they can not take part in this war, the, the only way. Since November last year, we've seen more and more activism from the wives of Russian draftees now fighting in Ukraine. These women have staged small but daring public demonstrations calling on the authorities to bring their husbands home. After some picketing and a few failed attempts to get permits for rallies, the police came to the homes of several of these women. Also, the relatives of several draftees now deployed in Ukraine have told journalists that federal security service officers visited the soldiers at the front line and proceeded to interrogate and threaten them, demanding that they basically get their wives back home to shut up. In all this activism, however, it's important to note that the soldiers' wives are campaigning against indefinite mobilization and demanding troop rotation. They're not calling for an end to the invasion. And how, uh, how does how does how do calls for troop rotation fit into this? Because asking to desert seems like an app, like an outright rejection of the war and I don't want to be involved, I don't want to kill, I don't want to be on the front lines. This to me seems like it's not quite it's not what you're describing. It's not like an outright rejection of mobilization or the war, but it's like do better by the troops, I guess. And I, and you know this is like a this is not what Western observers want to hear, obviously, because they want the war over. They don't. They don't. They don't want Russia to be more efficient. <laughs> but like, how do you, how does that fit into what what you're doing? I don't. I don't think it's about efficiency. It's uh, also for me. It's also about tiredness because yes, some people were falsely 
mobilized or maybe they willingly, not willingly, but they re- receive these conscription notes and come to army collecting points because they were afraid or because all of the other people go, so I should go. I don't understand what else I can do. I don't know my rights, which is quite common, unfortunately, for Russian people. We usually do not know our rights and our our democracy history is quite quite short, unfortunately. And then these people were waiting for some kind of the rotation. Okay, I will I will uh, survive somehow, but next September, next October, when uh, it's one year of my of my service, I will be rotated. And uh, when these people understood that there will be no rotation and Putin and other authorities many times said that there will be no rotation till war is ongoing. So they started to desert because that's the only way. They, they don't want to be there. And also there are different people and different motivations. Some people, but usually I, as far as I can see, it's mix of this motivation as I think it always happens with with hum with us humans, some people uh, do not want to to die there. Some people do not want to kill there, but usually it's both. And yeah, and they uh, and they contact us and they um, desert. And uh, by the way, we have also clients. I don't I don't know what what word to use. We call them clients, although obviously our services are for free. And uh, so we have clients, professional officers, so not people who were drafted, but people who who have quite, I would say, quite common message when they contact us that I, I went to army not to be part of this bloody war. I don't uh, became professional soldier to attack Ukrainian people. They didn't do anything to me. And I was starting to finish my service since the war st- started. I was trying to finish my service. But it was quite hard. It, it was taking a lot of time. My uh, commanders were saying to me that, okay, in a few months. And then Putin signed beginning of mobilization. It was September 2022. And uh, since the beginning of mobilization... All of the contracts and as well these uh, contracts with officers, they do not have any any deadline. These contracts are timeless. And that means that these people, mobilized people and these officers, they are in fact slaves of Ministry of Defense. And that was also a moment when these officers started to contact, asking for our help to desert. And many, many of up to now, it's more than more than sixty officers whom we've helped to desert, including two two majors. Can you like describe the demographic of most of the most of the men that that come to you? Like, are they are they like highly educated people that have like had enough of war? Or are they like the poor, poorest of the poor? I mean, you said you mentioned that you have had these officers apply, but you've also, as I understand it from your website, you've helped more than twenty-one thousand men 
and if, if just a few hundred or officers, most of these are lower ranking soldiers, obviously, but like, where do they come from? What, what kind of people are they? Yeah, many, uh, many of these 21,000, they are not in army yet. We've helped them when they were just civilians and most of them stayed civilians, which is the best, the best way. It's different people, most of them from big cities, because in big cities, people better know about us. Usually people get information about get lost from a friend or friend of a friend. Some people read different Russian media, which is prohibited already in Russia, but using VPN. People continue to read them. So it's Medusa, it's TV Rain, and so on and so forth. But usually, as I said, it's peer-to-peer. It's, uh, by the way, approximately 30% of people uh, requesting of our help, it's uh, women asking for help for their husbands, of their sons, or the, for their brothers. A lot, of, a lot of fear now in Russian society. For, for, for all of the men, it's more than 30 million Russian men who can be mobilized now. So a lot of these people have, have relatives, so it's approximately the whole country who is in fear that they or their beloved ones will be, will be drafted. And talking about age, it's different age. It's uh, obviously usually more younger people, like 20, 25, 30. But there are people uh, 40, 50 and even, even older because Ministry of Defense is taking whatever they can and whomever they can. I wouldn't say it's very, very educated people or with liberal values people. It's different people. It's people who are anti-war or tired of war. In the process of helping these people, does Get Lost insist on getting like an anti-war statement from people or is it is it just like you're just helping them regardless of why they want help we do not push them to get any statement for us it's uh, anyway it's better to make russian army one soldier less than this person will will stay on the front lines and will willingly or unwillingly but will be pushed to to shoot ukrainians so yeah, we think that it's anyway, it's better to make Russian army as weak as possible. Stepping back for a more geopolitical perspective on mobilization and military recruitment tactics, I spoke to Stefan Wolf, a professor of international security at the University of Birmingham in the UK and the co-founder of the Navigating the Vortex newsletter. We started off by talking about whether desperation is a fair word to use when describing Russia's methods. For listeners who, who, who follow the Ukraine war, I think a lot of the news they see has to do, or it involves Russians sort of rounding up Central Asian migrants and mobilizing, at least in the autumn of 2022, you know, old men. And it, it, there's, there's sort of a scent of desperation to the whole enterprise. And I wondered if you could explain why it is that Russia is recruiting and staffing its military in this way, because, you know, it has 
a lot of people, a lot more than Ukraine, and yet it's there's the, there's a sort of desperation to the way that they feel their military. Why is that? It's an interesting point. I mean, I did not look at it from the perspective of desperation necessarily. I mean, my sense was that, I mean, even in a dictatorship that Russia clearly is, um, I mean, conscription and sending mothers' sons to war to a highly likely death or injury, I mean, that's never popular. So, I mean, even whilst Putin certainly in September 2022 was probably feeling quite secure and fully in charge, I mean, even he, I think, has to watch quite carefully how or what he does in order to keep the Russian population on side, which, um, depending on which opinion poets you're looking at, it's still a reasonably popular war. But, uh, I mean, he has to watch that this level of popularity, both for the war and for himself, remains. The second point, and I say that with the benefit of my own age, actually recruiting older men isn't such a pointless idea because they will probably have had much better and much more consistent military training than a lot of the younger recruits that will have gone through the regular conscription that you have had in, in Russia basically forever. And that was similar to what actually happened in Ukraine. I mean, in Ukraine, you also initially recruited primarily people with military experience, actual military experience, rather than people who had done whatever, a six months stint in the armed forces, which involved like three weeks of training or something like that. So I think from from that perspective, I think we are now getting more to a stage where desperation is probably a better description of the term, because now it seems as if Putin really has to think more carefully about both the quantity and the quality of people that he's bringing into the military and where they are actually going to come from. And how, how sustainable do you think? I mean, you're, you're ta- you said just said that they may be becoming desperate. So does that, does that suggest then that the way they've been doing it is not a sustainable means of fielding a military and they're going to have to change tactics? I, I would absolutely uh, think so because, I mean, a lot of these, um, the, the way in which they recorded in the past, also, I mean, that has sort of brought up long-term problems. Now, there was just a story in the news the other day that some of the criminals that were recruited by Wagner and then got their pardon, I mean, they are now back into society, into the communities from which they came. I mean, that's not exactly a stabilizing move in that sense. So how sustainable is it going to be going forward? Not very. And I think that's why they are going back to what basically is the more regular way of how you bring people into not just the armed forces, but also how you train them up to uh, to fight. And I think here, Russia only really needs to worry about its own mobilization to be more sustainable than Ukraine's. And I think for that, as you said earlier, I mean, they simply have so many more people. And I mean, throwing in another 500,000 now basically will completely offset any effort that the Ukrainians are just about to make to basically bring their forces up to reasonable parity with what the Russians have. Indeed, Ukraine faces its own challenges in mobilizing men to fight in the war. On December 25th, the country's cabinet of ministers submitted draft legislation to the parliament basically to squeeze more out of its mobilization process, lowering the minimum draft age to 25, introducing electronic draft notices, adding new restrictions for draft dodgers, and so on. President Zelensky has said the military wants to mobilize an additional half million men in the near future. 
But the bill is controversial, and it returned to the government ministers on January 11th for revisions, reportedly after a closed session meeting with Ukraine's senior military commanders. Whatever Ukraine does, you can expect Moscow to respond by drawing on its superior manpower. While many say Russia could initiate a second round of mobilizations, Wolf, like Sverdlin, says it's unlikely before Russia's presidential election in March. I also think that Putin will quite carefully time an actual recruitment drive, and I would not expect that to really materialize before the presidential election. So I think there will be talk, there will be, the regime will signal clearly that more people will be called up and drafted in. And, you know, I mean, they have increased fines and, and, and all of that and digitalized the, uh, the system. But I don't think they will risk upsetting too many mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters um, before the uh, presidential elections are out of the way. And what about in Ukraine? What kind of, I mean, I know that, that they're now passing legislation to alter their mobilization strategy. And, you know, we've been talking about how Putin has to manage the politics of mobilization. But what about in Ukraine? I mean, they're not having a presidential election this year, so that's not part of the, that's not a factor. So looking ahead for the, you know, for the rest of the year, what do you expect to see? Well, I think in Ukraine, it's much more difficult because they have basically come to a point now where they, to the extent that I know the situation there, they have really run out of volunteers. So there will now be have to be sort of a degree of, I don't want to say force, but a degree of requirement, legal requirement that people actually have to serve in the armed forces and then be potentially deployed to the front lines uh, to defend uh, the country against Russia's aggression. And I think that too will, I think, not have an immediate effect necessarily, but I think it will erode the relatively high levels of popularity that Zelensky himself has. But also, I think it will erode over time, especially sort of once people begin to die in larger numbers. It will erode the support that we still currently are seeing in Ukrainian society for a policy that says we want everything back, borders of 1991, Russians out, no concessions, no negotiations. Uh, my worry is not so much that they can't get the people to do the fight. My worry is, and I mean, this is not like a worry in the sense that, I mean, I'm not personally involved there, but I would see that it will necessitate on the Ukrainian side a rethink of what is actually feasible, not what is morally just. I think there would be no disagreement there, but whether it's actually feasible to retain the moral high ground and for how long that will be possible. Coming back to Russia, one of the stories that's in the news quite a bit re recently is the fact that Russia is offering incentives to foreigners to come. Basically, they're giving citizenship if you sign a, a military service contract. And a lot of the responses I've seen to that are, oh, wow, what a, what, a, what a wonderful treat to get, you know, Russian citizenship in exchange to go die in Ukraine. It seems like a bad deal. But at the same time, you know, people are taking it, and it has to do with the same reason that, that migrants come to Russia in the first place, which is another thing that a lot of Westerners struggle to understand. From your perspective, how good a deal is this? Like, is this a very good incentive? I mean, the fact that you said that Russia might need to change tactics implies to me that maybe it's not, it's not going to incentivize enough people. But what's your assessment here? I mean, it's really hard to say because it's, I mean, it will really depend on where the market for that will be. My initial assumption would be that this is going to be formal 
Soviet territories where people speak Russian relatively well, where you may have relatively large ethnic uh, Russian populations, where you probably also have a reasonable degree of uh, sort of sympathy with Putin. Now, a lot of the people who will consider an offer like that, I mean, for them, a Russian passport is not going to be the main driving force. I mean, it will be primarily the, the money that they can potentially make much like other labor migrants and how that will enable them to support their families. Maybe afterwards, you know, take the money, go home, start a business, whatever it is. Um, so I think there is an, probably an economic calculation that will make it possible for Russia to recruit from these markets. The flip side of it, it will also depend on how the governments in these countries uh, will actually uh, take to that. So I remember probably a year ago or so, there were several reports in some of the media that I follow about governments like Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan who took a very dim view of their citizens uh, joining the Russian war effort in Ukraine. So I think if those governments sort of make it legally more difficult for people to actually go there and fight for Russia, that might also then, again, sort of put additional pressure on Russia to have to recruit domestically rather than being able to basically bring in foreign fighters. I wonder, what do you expect the lasting effects to be in Russia or in Ukraine, for that matter, socioeconomically, demographically, of the way that mobilization is, is rolling out? The things that come to mind are in the aftermath of World War II, we get a generation of fighters, and that was a truly, you know, that was a much broader war than, say, the Afghanistan war. But one of the repercussions of these conflicts is after World War II, you get a generation of people that feel like they have purchased over what the state has done. It kind of reinvigorates the Soviet mythology, the state mythology. It's sort of a new lease on life, and it puts the Soviet Union in sort of a post-Bolshevik era and so on. Afghanistan does something the opposite, I guess. It, it's a lost generation. It's they lose the war too, I suppose. So that's that's part of it. But what do you expect the the results to be, sort of in this in this way? I think that's very difficult to predict because it really depends on how the war will end. And I think just the comparison that you have drawn up between World War II and Afghanistan, I think, makes this very clear. I think what will be, in a way, more significant is sort of the demographic impact, because I mean. Russia, but also Ukraine to some extent. I mean, they are already demographically challenged. I mean, both countries have relatively low birth rates. You know, they have seen a huge outmigration. I mean, Ukraine for much longer periods have been accelerated by the war. Russia, I mean, we have seen, especially since the autumn last year, many young men, sort of fighting age men, leaving the country because they don't want to be conscripted. We have seen a brain drain, I think, a drain of entrepreneurship. And I think that will probably be exacerbated as a general result of the war. But also, if we now see, let's say, another half a million, a million people fighting in this war and then coming back either in a body bag or with injuries or otherwise uh, traumatized. So I think there will be longer term implications that even though it might be a smaller number than those that were affected by World War II. I mean, those smaller numbers now, of course, have much, much higher visibility. Um, so if you think about how, you know, news spreads across various social media platforms, 
you don't necessarily need to have somebody in your own family or circle of friends. You will know what's going on. And I think that will have a lasting impact on society, on both societies, on, on both sides of the war. And then depending on who loses it or who sees themselves as the loser, depending on whatever negotiated settlement there might be. I mean, that society will be additionally affected quite negatively and for, for, for probably another generation. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.